Hey everyone, welcome back to Around the Farm, the podcast about all things ag. I'm your host, Clint Schaffer, and today we're going to be doing a deep dive into the El Nino Southern Oscillation, otherwise known as ENZO, and the La Nina pattern that we're expecting to see this year. Once again, we're joined by Brad Coleman, an atmospheric scientist and the director of weather strategy for the Climate Corporation. Brad, welcome back. Uh, it's been a, a few episodes since the last time uh, you joined us here on Around the Farm, but uh, how about uh, you give our listeners uh, an introduction to yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me back on Around the Farm. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. I'm an atmospheric scientist for climate part of Bear Crop Sciences, and we work on making sure that we have the weather resources that we need to do the business that we do at Bear and, and climate. Well, speaking of some pretty cool things, I heard that you may have just had a pretty big honor here that happened to you. How about you explain this pretty big deal here? Sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, this last year, this year, I was actually asked by the American Meteorological Society to put my name in the hat for for president and just found out a few weeks ago that that I, I was able to win. And so now I'm president-elect for the American Meteorological Society. And we're a society of about 14,000 generally or scientists, atmospheric scientists. And it's a, it's a great time to have that role. A lot of important things going on with climate and weather and uh, making decisions on the direction uh, for weather in the United States. So I'm excited and, and humbled, uh, but excited to, to take on this new role. Well, congratulations, Brad. I mean, I can't, uh, can't think of anybody more, uh, more, you know, perfect for that, uh, for that role than, uh, than yourself. So, uh, so congratulations again. So thank you, Clint. Well, Brad, you know, last time uh, we had a discussion, you know, we talked about, you know, just some of the impacts of La Nina, and you were fairly confident that, uh, you know, going into 2022, that we were really going to see that uh, that very similar cycle. So I thought it, uh, it'd be good to, to bring you back on and really do a deep dive around just what that means for everybody in the ag community, uh, what that means for anybody, right? Uh, how does this impact, I guess, the world as, uh, as we start thinking about uh, La Nina? Yeah, uh, we were. And, you know, weather forecasting has its challenges, as we all know. And especially when you start looking beyond the first, you know, 10 days or so of the forecast, things even become more uncertain. And, and those who really focus and invest in seasonal forecasting, sub-seasonal forecasting, really looking out several months or even, you know, out to a year, they're looking for any little clue in the atmosphere or the Earth system that will give them that little bit of an edge. And the El Nino and La Nina, or ENSO, as scientists call it, that's the one place that we can build up a little bit of confidence. And there are a couple reasons there. One, they, they're relatively slowly varying. So once you have this ocean response that we typically, La Nina and La Nina reply to the tropical Pacific Ocean, you can be relatively confident that it's going to be there for a while. And then we can really look at what is the relationship between the ocean and the tropical Pacific and weather around the world. And it's a fascinating story, but it's one that seasonal forecasters really love uh, because it does give them that edge. And going to this, you know, through the summer, we saw La Nina forming. It, it developed certainly by, you know, late summer, early fall. 
And, and so all of a sudden you can be fairly confident. In fact, the Climate Prediction Center puts a 95% confidence that this La Nina will persist all the way through Northern Hemisphere spring. That's oh, wow. a great piece of information for a seasonal forecaster. Okay, so to, to, to I hear the terms La, or La Nina, the terms El Nino. Uh, could you give me just like a, 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 an easy to understand way to, to understand the, the difference between those two? I hear them all the time and I'm still probably a little confused on the difference. Okay, we'll give it a go. But <laughs> it's taken the scientists about 100 years to figure it all out. Uh, it started when Sir Gilbert Walker from... Uh, the UK, he was assigned to go to India and figure out why the Indian monsoon occasionally failed. So he went down there and did his homework. And, and we can return to that fascinating scientific investigation and story. But it really is all focused on the tropical Pacific Ocean. And it, start, it helps to start with what is the sort of the pattern in, in ocean temperatures from the west coast of South America all the way westward across the dateline into Indonesia. And, and what typically we find on sort of the average pattern is that we have tropical trade winds, right? We've all heard of tropical trade winds and they blow generally from east to west. So if you picture the large Pacific Ocean with this general pattern of winds blowing from east to west, so pushing the water towards Indonesia, what you end up doing is you pile up the warm water in the western tropical Pacific and you bring up some cooler water in the eastern tropical Pacific. And, and that's the pattern. And how much difference are we talking about? Uh, typically along the west coast of South America, along the equator, your temperatures are around 70 Fahrenheit or so. And by the time you get to the far western Indonesia area, the temperatures are in the mid-80s. So if you and I were to go swimming, we would recognize the difference between 70 and the mid-80s. And the atmosphere recognizes the difference between 70s and the 80s. So La Nina, what it really means is those trade winds are stronger. Ultimately, the atmosphere is working harder. It's pushing more the water farther and farther west and bringing up more and more cold water. So in the simplest term, that is, that's La Nina is the warm waters in the Western Pacific and the waters colder throughout from the Dateline all the way to South America is below normal. And, and so when, when you talk about uh, the, the temperature difference, so if La Nina is, is bringing in colder, how, how much does that end up dropping it from that 70-some degrees? I mean, yeah. Great, great question. And we're really, you know, it's not going to sound very impressive. We're, we're talking about shifts of temperature between maybe three and five degrees Fahrenheit okay. uh, between these different phases. You know, extremes, it can go a little bit, but, but not a lot. But the, the critical piece here, and what's so fascinating, Clint, is that the atmosphere, thunderstorms in the tropics are, are really influential about the jet stream, what, the, what we deal with it here in North America. And there's sort of a, a switch at about 83 degrees Fahrenheit or so at which if the water's colder than that, it doesn't support thunderstorms. And the water's warmer than that, it does. So all of a sudden we have this line moving back and forth along the equator with thunderstorms toward the west where it's warm enough to support thunderstorms and no thunderstorms farther east because the water's too cold. And that is the feedback that we're so critically focused on in North America and a lot of the world because the position of those thunderstorms 
influences our jet stream. Wow. Which I would assume then influences the rainfall across the Midwest then as well. Absolutely. That's the, the whole puzzle. And in fact, there are global connections uh, between this pattern in the tropical Pacific. The Pacific Ocean is huge. And, and this shifting in water really does influence many areas, all the way back to the Indian monsoon failure that I mentioned has to do. And that's what Sir Gilbert Walker figured out, is he said, you know, certain certain phases and going on in this oscillation, all of a sudden the monsoon fails, the thunderstorms shift farther east in that case, and there are all sorts of fascinating patterns associated with this sloshing back and forth of warm water in the tropical Pacific. Now, I, I use the term La Nina and El Nino, yet you said the, the weather community uses Enzo. And oh, yeah. What, 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 is, what does that mean then? Enzo stands for as an acronym for El Nino, Southern Oscillation. And it's oh. kind of grabbing a couple pieces here. The Southern Oscillation is the label that Walker used, is this oscillation wavering of, of pressure. And, and he saw it in the pressure. He didn't know what was going on in the ocean. But we know it's the same thing reflected in two different sort of metrics. So he called it the Southern Oscillation. And, you know, gradually scientists spent more and more time trying to figure it out. The, the, the natives along the west coast of South America, they're the ones who called who grabbed the name El Nino or Christ Child because the warm waters would appear around Christmas time. So they would see these warming episodes and they would, you know, they called it El Nino. So then the scientists came along and we said, well, if you have El Nino, you probably need to have the opposite phase. We'll call that the young girl or the female child and we will call that La Nina. So it's a little bit of you know, fascinating history and a little bit of scientist tinkering. So, so if uh, if La Nina is a you know three to five degrees less, right, or, or cooler, right, uh, in in those times, is is El Nino then? Would I would I think of three to five degrees warmer than average? Yeah, you're catching on to it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but it's again, where is this warm water? In El Nino, what happens is those trade winds weaken. And now that sort of that big pool of really warm water in the Western tropical Pacific, that gradually flows eastward along the equator. And those temperatures go up. And now you exceed all the way east of the dateline. All of a sudden, the temperatures are into the lower 80s Fahrenheit. And so then they bring thunderstorms with them. And they're big, persistent thunderstorms. And again, that's the connection to our weather. So, you know, I, if, if we can either have a La Nina or El Nino, what is it called if, if, if neither of those are, are happening? Yes, indeed. We're not always in one or the other. And that's called Enso Neutral, <laughs> a neutral phase. It's kind of average, which is what I described a bit ago. It's just kind of that average, cooler along the cooler waters in the Eastern Pacific, Warmer waters in the western, a lot more thunderstorm activity in Indonesia and in that area than, you know, that's just kind of the pattern. So it's really waverings and of magnitude of that pattern between La Nina and El Nino. Well, and it also seems like we just had, we just got out of a La Nina, I believe, in, in this yeah. previous year. So now we're going to roll back into another La Nina 
Does, are, are you seeing the frequency of this increasing? I mean, it seems like we're we're having one of these events, uh, you know, maybe more often than what uh, what my memory memory serves me. But uh, I'm sure you'll tell me tell me one way or the other here. <laughs> yeah, you know, we talk about an oscillation, and you know, back and forth. It's a pretty sloppy oscillation, to be honest with you. And they occur El Nino, La Nina, maybe every three to seven years. So they're not like clockwork. They kind of come and go, and there will be periods of time where you have more of one and more of another later. And it, it is interesting, and you're right, Clint, this is the second La Nina in a row. But actually, if we look back, uh, La Ninas more often than not do sort of pile up one on another. About 70% of the time, if we have one La Nina, the next winter will be a La Nina. El Nino right. is not the same. El Nino's don't stack up. And I think it's a lot that, you know, they sort of, in many ways, uh, an El Nino depletes all that hot water in the Western tropical Pacific because it surges along the equator back to the West and it gradually dissipates and cools off. And it takes a while to build that back up. La Nina is just sort of the strength of the trades and keeping that cold water in place. So El Nino itself, relatively short-lived, typically, you know, nine to 12 months. Uh, La Nina, more often than not, a couple in a row. Well, I'd like to get to, you know, some of the weather impacts that, that this ends up having on on us across the, really across the Midwest, right? We've already had some really what I would consider historic events, it seems like, that, that's happened here this past month. You know, whether it's a tornado event that went across Kentucky and Illinois and a few other parts there that that impacted. I think that tornado I, I heard was on the ground for like 166 miles, right? Crazy. Crazy, yep. And then followed by the very next week, historic wind events that, that swept across Nebraska, northern Iowa, into, into Minnesota. Did they have a direct relationship with La Nina then, is, is why we're seeing like these, these heavy storms mm-hmm. in the wintertime? Yeah. Great question. And one we get all the time in the you know, weather community as far as, well, is, is, is this storm a result of global warming? Or is this, and, and, and we can't, give attribution to any single event. We can't say this is because of La Nina or this is because of El Nino or global warming. What we do know is sort of how it shifts odds, right? I mean, and that's really what forecasting and all of this is about is we can look at, if we look in the past or if we understand the physics and run a lot of computer simulations, we can understand how certain patterns shift the likelihood of severe weather or shift the position of the jet stream on average. It doesn't give you information about a single event. But with that in mind, what we do know is that, you know, tornadoes in December are rare, Uh, but they happen. You know, tens of tornadoes a year on average, southern tier of states, Gulf Coast into Florida. And we do know that if you look back in history, that that sort of the severe weather activity shifts a little bit farther north with La Nina. So, you know, that's consistent with what we saw. We also know that the jet stream uh, during La Nina is a little bit farther north. And then that's consistent with what we saw coming out of Colorado with those strong winds. They had the strong uh, downslope winds of Colorado and that storm just worked its way out across the, the Western Plains. So each of those storms is consistent with the shift in probabilities that we know are associated with La Nina. Did La Nina, you know, in any way assure or account for it? Eh, no, but it shifts the odds enough that it's consistent. 
Gotcha. Nope, that makes sense. It, it does that. Is it having an impact on this nice, mild weather that I'm having uh, currently? Uh, where I sit, I mean, if I look at the the temperature gauge, you know, it's almost Christmas and it's like you know 50 degrees outside. So uh, we're typically, you know, it, you know, a lot of years it's you know snow packed. We got ice. We got you know cold weather, and it seems like it's been a very uh, I'm not complaining, so I don't want to complain about this, but it seems like a very mild December so far in, in regards to temperature. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, we certainly had, a, in fact, last time we chatted, we were sort of expecting a, a rather dry and, and mild fall, and, and that really materialized. It's been very mild across the Midwest and overall quite dry. Uh, as we move into sort of the, the peak of the impact of La Nina, what we'd expect to see is coldness across all the northern states, except for maybe extreme New England. So from the Pacific Northwest, across Montana, all the Dakotas, Minnesota, Great Lakes, should on average be colder than normal. Uh, flip that side, go across the southern tier of states, on average, the southern tier is warmer than normal. So that's what we should see. And you know, the models, for the most part, are, are supporting that. And the observations, like you say, it's been a little bit mild. Uh, farther north than we might have expected. But when we look ahead over the next you know, six weeks or so, we see the potential for another Arctic outbreak pushing all the way down practically to the Gulf Coast, uh, but oh, wow. then working its way back north. So there will be pushes of cold air. The cold air will stay primarily across the northern tier of states. And then rainfall-wise, you know, precipitation-wise, it really is sort of a couple places tend to be wet, which is the northwest, uh, and then a little bit in the upper Great Lakes. We are seeing the wetness in the Northwest, uh, and that's been there all fall, and that looks like it's going to continue. The upper mid Great Lakes region, eh, we're not quite seeing the wetness there. We're seeing a little bit down farther south. But overall, from about the Rockies all the way to the East Coast, the, the odds are for it being a little bit drier than normal. It's interesting you talk about the the cold air shifting south because that was going to be one of my questions. You know, I I remember last year, you know, we had a that that really cold event. I think it was in February, you know, where there was freezing temperatures clear down in like the, you know, down in the Gulf of Mexico, right? Clear down yeah. into, into yeah. the deep south of, of Texas, even, you know, they typically don't see those kind of, of, of weather events. Uh, again, would that be consistent with, with the La Nina to, to have those kind of, you know, maybe not that far, but to have a, a little bit of push of, of cold air south? That's uh, a great question. Again, uh, it, on average, what you do see is you actually see warmth across Texas and, and Oklahoma even and farther all the way into the southeast. It tends to be warm. But we also know that there's a lot of cold air in Western North America uh, during La Niña's. And, and it's been there, actually, eastern Alaska, northwest Canada is probably one of the, the coldest starts to a winter they've had in a long time. It's been very cold up there. And, and so that's sort of the average pattern. But then uh, occasionally this jet stream that we expect to kind of come in across sort of mid-states, you know, across Colorado and that. And that's kind of the boundary between cold air to the north and warm air to the south. We know occasionally that gets a little bit of a wiggle in it. And, and if it does wiggle and it drives some of that cold air south, there's a lot of it available. So it's sort of a secondary effect. How about that? We, we pool up a lot of coal there up north. We can be pretty confident the, cold, the northern states are being cold. 
It's a little bit less confidence or uncertainty, but occasionally some of that cold air can push well south. And like I said, when we look out a few weeks, the models are saying that there's a shot that we'll get another cold surge uh, early next year. Well, I always like the uh, the cool terms that the weather community like attaches to those types of events. You know, I think uh, it was a few years ago that uh, the first time I heard uh, polar vortex, right? And there was a polar vortex coming down on, uh, like I said, uh, right where we right where we're at, right? Which I brought like I don't know, negative fifty degree wind chills. I think is is what we had. It was freezing, yeah. you know. And uh, but it's always interesting to hear those different terms, and uh, and now when we hear those things, it's like, oh no, I don't want that again. <laughs> <laughs> Not looking forward to any polar vortex around home anyway. Yes, indeed. It's fascinating to those of us in the business as well, because they kind of, they come out from, some of them you can trace back to even some some research where someone decided that this is worth labeling. Uh, others where it was some very creative uh Editor somewhere decided this is this this will catch this will get readers or something and they put it there and it catches fire and and okay. so yeah polar vortex you know it they happened before <laughs> and they're going to happen some more but it was new and exciting and now we we're going to live with polar vortex the the new one on the block is atmospheric rivers uh, and oh. that probably you hear about less in the in the Midwest but out on the West Coast. Uh, this can tie back some, you know, some really fascinating research on 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 weather patterns in the Eastern Pacific and and how storms come into the West Coast got labeled atmospheric river. It's kind of cool, uh, right? It's a cool name. And if you look at the the flow of these storms, it accounts for like seventy percent of the rainfall in California. Oh, so wow. there's a lot of focus on atmospheric rivers now. And so here in the Northwest. You know, all of a sudden we're getting headlines about another atmospheric river headed to Washington or British Columbia. You know, they had just terrible floods, destructive, you know, uh, fatalities and just did tens of millions of dollars worth of damage. They had probably never had atmospheric river on the front page of their papers. They do now. Yeah. As we shift to kind of looking at, at just some of the weather uh, that we can kind of expect, um, you know, I know that there's areas of the of the U.S. that have been uh, incredibly dry. Um, I think uh, towards, you know, I think there's areas in California and, and in that area that have been uh, been you know pretty pretty dry on average. Uh, and then there's other areas that uh, you know there's been still some flooding and things of that nature that have happened. I mean, are we looking at more of the same of the similar events that, that happened last year? Those of us that got too much rain or not enough rain, is, is do we kind of expect that same kind of thing? Or can it shift enough year to year that we may not know that as of right, you know, right now? Yeah. Well, let's talk first about sort of what we, how we went into this. As, as you said, we, we, we went into the, the fall and winter season with exceptional drought across much of the Southwest and West and, and, and severe drought into the Dakotas, Western Dakotas. We recovered a bit in the fall, but th there was dryness essentially from the Canadian border to the Mexican border. Uh, less soil moisture than we'd like to see, typically see an excessive moisture off into the Ohio area, Ohio River Basin, you know, those areas. So that was a pattern that we went into this. Uh, La Nina pattern itself favors dryness across the Southwest. So the initial feedback and, and projections were saying, you know, Southern California doesn't look good. Uh, 
And then as you get farther into the higher plains, you know, the, the, the Climate Prediction Center was forecasting drought to expand in Texas because of the expected dryness there. And so that pattern, I think, except for California, back to California in a minute, that pattern looks like it, it's evolving, it's there. So we had dryness, we're going to see continued dryness. So those areas, through, through spring or so, there's not a lot of indication that they can expect much recovery from from that ongoing drought condition in the in the western plains california for whatever reason you know this is where the mysteries of the atmosphere they've had a couple really good storms and even though we weren't expecting them to penetrate down into southern california they have and right now what we're seeing as we look out again you know a month or or two we see that several more storms should spread up and down that california coast so things are looking a little bit better sort of for California, and, and things are very, very wet up in the Northwest. So the Western drought is, is beginning to be eaten away a bit. Good. As you get farther east, there's some indication that even Western Colorado might get some snow. They really need snow. The ski resorts are struggling on man-made snow right now. There's some indication of some relief through there. But then you get to, again to the Western Plains and North Dakota, South Dakota, into Minnesota. Uh, Dryness is probably the, the best bet for this, this winter through early spring. If you're in one of those areas where you were struggling with moisture, um, is that the, kind of the expectation, you know, of, of going into this year? Yeah, there's no real indication of a big pivot anywhere. Sort of what you've been experiencing through this, I think, you know, this winter. And then even next summer, uh, La Nina fades away. 50-50 uh, chance it will be back to Enso neutral you know, neutral conditions in the tropical Pacific. But there are other patterns that the seasonal forecasters use. And right now, this coming year is looking a lot like this past summer, where we'll have, you know, the dryness across the north, wet uh, across the eastern, you know, from Illinois eastward, it'll be wet. And warmth across the south, but Midwest, upper Midwest, average temperatures or so. Uh, is what we're looking at right now for that area for the growing season. So sort of an early start, an early start to spring, especially south uh, because of the warmth with La Nina. And so it should be warming up a little bit quicker, more quickly than average. And then as you get it into Dakotas, they might have a delayed spring um, as, we, as La Nina fades away um, March into April. Just with a, with a longer, maybe a colder Colder spring, then is that yeah. is, is that yeah. kind of what you're thinking? Yep. Yeah. Now, what what time frame, Brad? Like when you start looking into, we get into next year, so we know we're going to have this impact of of La Nina. At what time throughout the year do you know the next year's cycle? Again, they peak in in the in the in the mid winter season, northern hemisphere winter, uh, and then they go into the spring season. Then there's sort of a what we used to talk about a barrier in forecasting, whereas they fell apart, we really didn't have a lot of clues on what was going to come out the other side. So sort of late spring into early summer, you kind of sat back and, and waited. More and more, we have better modeling going on, better what we call coupled models, where the atmosphere and the ocean are actually put together in the computer simulations. So we're getting better at it. But at this point, I think it's we can say by July, we know pretty well what the state of the tropical Pacific is going to be through all the all through the next winter season into the spring. So before that, a lot of uncertainty. 
by July, you're getting a pretty good signal whether you're going to have a little Nino or La Nina or Enso Neutral. By the time you get to September, it, it really is in the bag. You know, we're not making a lot of mistakes. We can, you know, there can be, a, we, you know, we can miss it. But by then you can be pretty confident that you're seeing what, what card, you know, the atmosphere is playing. So the other thing that you've talked about is just, you know, the accuracy of forecast, right? And, uh, you know, as it seems like you can get really accurate on like, let's say a three-day forecast, you're fairly accurate on a 10-day. And, and then once we start, you know, getting further and further out, it's, it's more and more uncertainty. Um, does having an event, uh, El Nino or La Nina, make it easier to predict uh, the weather, the upcoming weather, like the actual forecast, right? Uh, as it does in a Enzo neutral time frame. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't probably make a heck of a lot of difference in the first week's forecast, you know, and to, okay. because all of that's really the what's determining our next, you know, seven days or ten days of weather is already in the atmosphere itself. You know, the, the jet streams doing this, and the cold air's here or there, and. You know, it, it's already sort of pre, you know, determined from the atmosphere itself. If you go beyond that, if you're out to, you know, one month or two months, then what, you, because of these, this, the forcing that we're getting from the ocean, then it really does, it, it takes away some of the variability. These strong phases of La Nina, La Nina or El Nino, they, they kind of take out a few atmospheric options. So it locks it into a few, you know, it doesn't mean it can't, stray the other way, but it yep. really it really shifts the probabilities. So whenever we can shift probabilities to some event, we could be just much more confident in communicating that and ultimately we're we're correct more often than not in those cases. Well that's why I was kind of curious because you know it, it it seems like when we say the Enzo neutral, I guess the word that keeps coming up in uh, in my mind is the average, right? This is just kind of normal or or you know whatever. And uh, but it also seems like that might be the the hardest time to actually be right on whatever the trends are, too. Yeah, it, you're right, and that sort of the the best predictors that we have for seasonal forecasting are El Nino and La Nina. That that's <laughs> that's that's money in the bank. For seasonal forecasters, if you take that out of the out of the mix, we're left looking for other indicators. You know what else is going on? What are those linear trends from year to year to year? And and we can eke out a little bit here and a little bit there, but yeah, you're taking away our 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 money if you get. Well, rid you of know, those. you talk about these these different indicators. You've talked about simulations that are ran, computer simulations that are ran. You talk about you know all these different types of forecasting tools. What if you had to just pick one and said that this is Brad's favorite tool indicator or or you know simulation? What is your favorite, most favorite thing to go to in regards to weather for a tool that you use? For a tool I use, that's a good question. <laughs> I I have my own. When I look at my weather and where I'm going to head for a vacation, you know, I I use a lot of NOAA material. Uh, we have a lot of uh, access to information to climate, of course. I, I use all that, and I kind of do my own thing. Uh, but when I look ahead at the future and where we're going, and you know, gains in weather forecasting and subseasonal forecasting, they, they've been hard fought. It's it's a slow process and trying to get a little bit better in that second week and stuff. 
you know, all that, Clint, is is coming from investments in in resources for NOAA computing. Uh, atmospheric models are huge consumers of of computing resources. And, you know, I think it's economics and 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 weather models are the two that just gobble up whatever you can feed it. And, and so as we invest more, as the U.S. government invests more, as the European Center for Medium-Range Weather Forecasting, as they invest more, they get better and better models. And these are computer simulations, which is really the bread and butter, the foundation for all of modern-day weather forecasting. So, you know, I go, I, I those models, they... They're incredible in what they can do. When, you know, I look back when I was a graduate student, which was a long time ago, but, you know, we would, we would get these computer simulations and they, they could flip flop in tomorrow's forecast practically. They were bad. And, and, and today it's amazing what they, how stable they are in that first week. We don't miss a lot in the first week. Occasionally we'll get a little bit of a surprise, but it's just continued you know, scientific research and investment in, in weather forecasting that will pay off for us in the future. And, and that's, that's what I would advocate for is, is ongoing investments in, in NOAA. Uh, uh, they, they produce all the foundational weather for what goes on in the private industry in the U.S. and around the world. They produce a lot of it. And, and that requires investments in computing resources. Do you, uh, on the computer side, you know, I always think of like, you know, systems like, you know, climate and, and all these other, you know, very sophisticated things that have a lot of models into them. Uh, where do you think uh, artificial intelligence plays a role in, in weather forecasting in the future? Great question. And one that we're really just starting to get our hands around. Uh, early on, and in some ways, sort of early examples of machine learning and artificial intelligence were some of the sort of early stuff that was done in atmospheric sciences and, you know, some statistical applications. And I think we all thought, okay, we'll start using it, but we'll keep that computer model and we'll, we'll do stuff with the output and we'll use machine learning to improve the quality of the output. Lately, Clint, I've been seeing some scary things, scary in the fact that, wow, this is how does this work? Because some, some researchers are able now to put that computer simulation aside and, and start applying these machine learning models to just sort of the observations in general of the atmosphere that we're getting better and better at observing. And they have demonstrated skill out a couple weeks without ever turning on a computer simulation of, of the atmosphere. So I don't know where it's going. It, it could be, I, I told you, you know, these winds have been hard fought. Uh, in, in weather, but you know, it wouldn't totally surprise me if someone has something come along in these next, you know, five or 10 years that really changes the field of weather prediction coming out of machine learning, deep learning processes. That is just exciting. You know, I mean, uh, I, 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 I take it back to like even, uh, our farm, uh, right. And, uh, dad and I look at it as, uh, we feel like we can continue to get better the more data that we collect, right? And there's a lot of times you collect data that you don't necessarily know what you're going to do with it, but you know that that data collection is going to be important as we continue to move forward. And uh, and it's amazing. We were just talking the other day about the number of data points that that we're collecting that we never thought we would, right? Like the the down pressure of the <laughs> of the planting unit or things of that nature. And now we start mixing in 
all the different weather uh, points that we can uh, collect on a field. I mean, I, I think it just uh, is going to continue to get just more and more fascinating as we move into into that advanced learning piece. Yeah, it, it really does bring it home to what we're doing at, at Bear and Climate, as far as mining these data. We know just you know we know there's so much value there, and, and how do we start manipulating those data? And there are going to be a lot of really great surprises coming along, and, and seeing that value that. Maybe right now we're collecting the data and we're not quite sure what we're going to do with it, but there will be value there. Well, I tell you what, the last thing that I'd like to talk to you about is I know that you're a, a, a winter sports enthusiast. So what are, you, uh, what are you predicting? Where's the best spots to go uh, hit the slopes at? Where am I going to drag a, a snowmobile to? You know, like where, where's, where's going to be the best spots for, uh, for winter fun this, uh, this year? Okay. Couple qualifiers. First off, I'll only talk about skiing from the Rockies west. <laughs> okay, fair Nothing enough. East of the Rockies. Uh, my, my little my little local hill up here with one lift doesn't doesn't qualify for you. Not worth talking about. No. <laughs> uh, initially, it really it was looking like it was going to be the Northwest. Uh, the resorts up here into southern you know British Columbia, Whistler. A little concerned about uh, farther east into Utah and, and the Rockies, and they certainly have started in in Utah, inland, and in, in Colorado. They've started out very badly, but as I mentioned, there are just a few indicators that right now California they've had a few really big events. They're skiing a lot of places. It looks like they'll get some more. So I think California, good skiing uh, coming up for the you know this oh. winter. There'll be some good. There'll be some good times here in the Northwest. Uh, we have a lot of snow already. Uh, nope. So we don't have a problem here. We'll be skiing all, all winter into spring. Uh, probably the biggest question mark is you go to Colorado or Utah. Uh, that that will be one. I just I I don't know. I'm I'm hopeful. Certainly, uh, you want them to get what they need as far as the snow. And it'd be a shame if they're skiing on mad main snow all winter. But um, yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting. I think that the West Coast is looking fairly good and looking better, especially you know, looking better than it did maybe even a month ago. And nope. and then Utah, Colorado, a little bit more questionable. Uh, we'll see. Now, now, do you have a, do you have a temperature break that you refuse to go skiing if it's at a, at a certain temperature? Like, can it get too cold for you? Uh, it, not when I was young. Uh, now, now it's, yeah. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> I, I mostly ski out in the West, and, and it doesn't get all the, that cold out here. I, I was an undergraduate in Montana. There was, uh, when I was in college, my first few years in college, they would actually give half-price ski lift tickets at, at Bridger Bowl for if the temperature was below minus 20. Oh, and no that's when we'd go. And I can remember some pretty cold chair rides up with the wind blowing and just kind of, why, why? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that gets to just be that, that's too cold for me. So I don't I don't I don't move well when it's that cold. So no. <laughs> well, Brad, I tell you what, I really greatly appreciate you, you know, coming on the on the show again and really stepping us through just the entire ins and outs of of La Nina. I mean, it's just uh I find this uh this weather event uh absolutely fascinating for how it can be utilized to to understand a lot of these uh these events. Uh and I know a lot of the the data points that you've brought uh have opened up my eyes and I'm sure uh, the our listeners are are thinking the same thing. So uh so thank you for for coming on the show again. Well, thanks very much, Clint. It, it's been fun. 
And, and I'll be sitting here right with the rest of you, seeing how the rest of this winter works out and where we're right and maybe where we missed it. So Yeah. And also, just uh, just one more time, congratulations on the, uh, on the president-elect. So uh, that is uh, a great honor and, uh, and congratulations again. Thank you. I'm excited and humbled by the opportunity. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you next time and uh, we'll go, go from there. So I appreciate it. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. Hey, I just want to give a special thanks to Brad for coming on and, and really explaining that La Nina pattern that we're expecting to see this year. That was just some wonderful insight. Also, thank you, the listener, for joining us on today's episode. And if you like the episode, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, and ring the bell to get notified each and every time that we push out new content. Also, Around the Farm is brought to you by Climate Field View. And with that, we'll see you next time, Around the Farm. <laughs>